Please join me this morning as we read the sermon text from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Again, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Thank you, John, for reading the scripture. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, one of my greatest joys in life is gathering Sunday with God's people. Um, man, I got to tell you, the last few Sunday nights, I walk away from Sunday night just thanking the Lord for our sweet church family. Um, oftentimes in the prayer requests, I find myself encouraged and challenged and then able to partner with you all in prayer. Uh, it's, it's, it's enjoyable, and I recognize that as a pastor, I'm just weird. Um, but I hope you as a believer find that same joy, that that is truly a delight to be with God's people and to gather with them. As we look at this passage in Philippians, I want to just introduce you to a couple thoughts. Before I do that, uh, just a note on Sunday night, I, I, sometimes I don't listen very well, so I will give you a pass too if you didn't hear. Uh, tonight we don't have an evening service. We only have that member meeting, so that's only for members. No evening service tonight, having just told you how good the evening service has been. <laughs> so uh, next week, come back to the evening service. Uh, this week, we, we just need to do uh, family stuff, and so uh, it's for members only, those who are 18 and up. Uh, just I want to say that because I've been told twice this morning not to forget, so I figured if I say it now, no one can say I forgot, but I'm supposed to say it at the end. Just you know, I figured I would not forget that way. Okay, we're in Philippians. A couple things that, that I think are helpful for us to, to recognize is that he's writing to a church. And he indicates that he's writing from jail and he's trying to encourage them and there's something hard going on in their lives too. I think the text generally this morning is recommending for us a type of behavior in messy, hard, hurtful, painful, challenging times. And, and it comes in all sorts of waves at us. Uh, maybe you've had this experience while in a hurry, it seems like everything goes wrong. You know, so kind of that, that Sunday morning hustle can happen, or whether you're on your way to school, and it's like you're 10 minutes late. You don't think that should be that big a deal. But you're trying to get your kids ready, your 8-year-old's lost his shoes, your 4-year-old's screaming, your 14-year-old's not going to help at all, you can't find your keys to your car, what did that moment look like in your house? If that was you growing up, if you can just picture yourself and put yourself there, it, it's not impossible that we'd see godly people in that moment not very godly, right? Like saying something unkind to like your eight-year-old who can't find his other shoe, like, what's wrong with you? Well, they're probably just like you. You can't find your keys either, right? Like this is normal life, but, but our mouth and our hearts begin to express things we normally wouldn't express under that pressure and that tension, so how do you keep spiritual stability when the world's rocking you? A few years ago, and uh, probably unfairly and dishonestly, I think of myself as athletic, I tried to do paddle boarding. I was horrible. Like, I couldn't stay up on that dumb thing. I thought, this, this should be easy. Like, how do you stay stable on a board? It's like three feet of water. So it didn't bother me to fall, but it's like, I couldn't do it. Like, I just could not stay up and paddle the thing very well. I mean, I could stand, but then I wouldn't move. And as soon as I started paddling, I'm over. I get up, and I just I couldn't do this thing. Maybe you feel like that in your spiritual life. Like, if it's calm, if it's still, you're stable. But the instant there's pressure on you, there's any waves rocking you, or you try to do anything, boom, you're down. This text is written for the church in that moment. What does it look like to face pressure? In fact, look with me in verse 30. 
I just want to kind of build that understanding of the pressure they're experiencing. In verse 30, he says um, that they are in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Okay, so, so there are three conflicts mentioned if you didn't catch it. You have a conflict in Philippi. I had a conflict. I now have a conflict. You should at least recognize right there that apparently Christians have conflicts. Like, there's challenges going on in the Christian life. It's not all smooth sailing. If you recall into Acts 16 when the Apostle Paul first went to Philippi, what they did to him. Uh, he, had, he had been ministering there and serving there, and he threatened their economy. So what did they do to him? They publicly beat him and imprisoned him. And throughout his ministry, he's constantly suffering persecution. Where is Paul when he writes this letter? In prison for the sake of the gospel. And so he's saying, I am currently in this conflict. I am suffering for the sake of Christ. I am being persecuted and prosecuted by the Gentile world that doesn't believe and does not love Christ and wants to subdue and suppress his message. That has been and is currently a tension and a suffering and a pressure and a conflict I have. What then can we assume the Philippians have? Uh, maybe they're not getting beaten and imprisoned, but we'd at least assume a parallel suffering. That for the sake of Christ, they are getting persecuted and prosecuted by the Gentile and unbelieving world because of their faith. And so the Apostle Paul's writing to them to strengthen them and to call them to a certain type of behavior, a certain theological faith-filled response in light of really, really hard times. Go back to verse 27, and we kind of have this theme verse we spent all of last week on, only let your manner of life be worthy. That word worthy, if you recall, means live like a citizen. It has that, that, that root word at the very beginning of like politics or polity. It, it speaks to, to like how a place is governed or the civics are run. And in this sentence, it means something like live as a citizen. And the pattern of citizenship is what? The gospel, which is the message about Jesus. And so we spent a lot of time last week trying to just go through that slowly enough that we didn't fly by what I think is one of the most significant verses in this whole letter about how we should be behaving and thinking and living. In other words, if you go forward, like for instance, Epaphroditus and Timothy, he says, I have no one who's like-minded. He's talking about the way we view the world and how he lives not for himself but for Christ. And so in this text where he calls us to a type of lifestyle, a type of thinking, a type of pattern, this has implications for the rest of the letter and for the whole church in Philippi as you engage life. Okay, so having set the stage, here's what we kind of have going on. Life is, is rocking this church. They need to live in a certain pattern. The question we obviously have then is, well, what does that pattern look like? Like, like okay, so live like a citizen of heaven sounds good, but that's just kind of like, a blank canvas. What, is, what, 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 what colors that canvas? What, what does that actually mean? So look again in this text. It says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, which is the message of Christ. That's how we should read that line there. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Again, descending the stage, he's in Rome in prison, and he wants to visit them, but he's going to send Timothy first. So that's why he would hear about it. I'm sending my son in the faith to hear about what's going on in there from him. He's going to go get a report, spend time with you, come back and tell me. But don't worry, I'm still coming too. So whether Timothy brings a report or I get there, no matter what or when, when we show up, here's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. He gives us three commitments that he wants this church in Philippi to have. And so if you're thinking through that, that, that would be your three points. This, this, and this are ways in which we live worthy of the gospel, these commitments. Verse 27, whether I see you or am absent, I hear that you are doing what here? Standing firm in one spirit. So as we consider what it means to live like a citizen of heaven, to have stability in our faith as we walk through trials and suffering, here's what he's asking for us to have, stability by the power of God's Spirit. Stability by the power of God's Spirit. 
Standing firm is actually a soldier term. And you can picture a Roman soldier in a, in a line, in a phalanx, where he's got to plant himself and not be driven back by an opponent that's crashing into him. Because if he falls back and leaves a hole in the line, the rest of his fellow soldiers and the line itself is jeopardized and can fall apart. He is saying, anchor yourself and be firm. How? He says, in one spirit. Now, naturally, when we think of our spirits, like, man, my spirit was really discouraged, or we need to be united in spirit, we immediately think in terms of, like, our, our unity of, like, solidarity and team and, and, and connections that way. The Apostle Paul almost never, ever, ever uses the word spirit that way. That's a very modern idea of, like, spirit. What he means here is something like this. By the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, stand firm. How many Holy Spirits are there? It was not a true question. One. Now here's the point. Go to, verse, go to chapter 2 with me real quickly. If there's encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, remember what's happening in this church in Philippi. Assuming it's similar to Paul, they're getting beaten, imprisoned, Perhaps they're losing their homes, they're losing their respect and their cultures, their, their businesses are at threat. Um, if you have a marriage in which one spouse gets saved and the other doesn't, perhaps divorces are happening, homes are being divided. The, the gospel does not bring peace to a culture that hates Christ. Jesus Christ came and scripture says that he brings division. Now, it doesn't say that because he's a divider. He's calling people to himself, and when he does, he calls them out of the world, and those two things are opposed to each other. So it should be no surprise that we find within churches that are vibrant, churches that are doing gospel work, that Satan and the culture is targeting them and attacking them with all sorts of pressure. So if there's any comfort, man, do we need comfort if we're suffering? If there's any affection, any sympathy, well, I skipped a word. Did you catch that? You guys didn't. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any... What? Participation in the Spirit. Now here's the, here's the essence of it. The Holy Spirit unites us. In fact, this is one of the points of the church in 1 Corinthians 12. God has given us gifts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that like a body, we must have others or we cannot function well as godly people. There is no such thing as a rogue Christian separated from the body of Christ who has any right to call himself a Christian if he's doing so willfully. Never in the New Testament would you see a guy like that. Ever. That is because the vitality, the, the nutrients, the, 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 the work of God's grace happens in connection to other believers. God's ministry of grace flows to us through his people. And so we are ministers of his grace. And I don't mean that like capital M, like pastors. I mean you all serve as ministers of grace whether you're vacuuming carpets on Saturday or praying for someone and they never know, whether you're speaking to someone and pointing them to Christ, you are ministering God's grace to us. But what brings us to this unity is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as pressure amounts, it grows, as, as we are attacked by the assault of Satan, as our own hearts and lives Tend, uh, tend to bring sorrow to others in our community, there is a tendency to give up our passion, our joy, and our commitment to Christ. Well, let me just ask you, have you ever felt like giving up? Those of you who have been married for any amount of time, have you ever felt like giving up? Those of you who parent kids who are hard, that means all of you parents, have you ever felt like giving up? Soldiers in battle, if they give up, they die and people around them die. When the line breaks and it's every man for himself, not only is there not unity, there's casualties. And he's looking at the church and he's calling them to, like a soldier, stand firm. We do this 
only through the grace of God's Spirit. Let me just spend a second to meditate on that before we move on. Godly unity within the church is not a matter of shared joys. Okay, so, so analogously, you guys might know that one of my joys in life is the Packers succeeding. One of my deep sorrows in life is the Packers not succeeding. Um, but if, if I were to go to a, a venue, like let's say it's not in Green Bay, but I was to wear a Packer jersey, friends will come out of the woodwork. <laughs> like, walk through Walmart, wear a Packer jersey, and be like, yeah, and someone will give you five. And like, yeah. And like, Green Bay, man, I love them. And you're like, oh, yeah, we're, it's kind of the fraternity, like you're connected. Or perhaps you, you've gone to school somewhere at a university and you meet someone who's also a graduate. And there's kind of this immediate nostalgic connection of memory and shared experiences. Sometimes we can reduce the church to that type of garbage unity. Like we are not merely a fraternity of people who like to do nothing on Sundays except sit around and hear a guy monologue. We, we are not a group of people who just likes food, and so we find excuses to do fellowships. We are not merely people who like to look at ancient books, so we read one that's a couple thousand years old. We are a people who are only united by supernatural grace, which means the church ought to be able to withstand the disunifying pressure of hurt, of, of attacks by, by culture and people, by the struggles of sinners within its body, because what brings us together is not a shirt with a big G on it. What brings us together is not shared hobbies. What brings us together is not demographic uniformity. We're not all the same ethnicity or age. We shouldn't be. Because what brings us together is supernatural. It is that we share in common a full-hearted commitment to the Holy Spirit's and his grace in our lives, and he keeps us loving one another despite pressure. So if you're struggling with unity, you're actually struggling against the Spirit. And it is only by our submission to him that we can stay unified. If you're gossiping, not only are you sinning, you're destroying the unity that the Spirit is fighting to create. If you're causing division, if you're feeling divided, recognize there is a spiritual, capital S, battle in which Christ is calling you. Stand fast. Don't move. Don't be shaken. Don't leave the church. Don't leave Christ. Don't leave his people. Don't abandon them. Don't forsake them. Don't attack them. Love them. That's what chapter 2, he's going to start explaining more and more what it looks like and feels like to be in this community of faith. Can I tell you how brutally hard it is to read phrases like verse 4 of chapter 2, let each one of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Or verse 3, count others more significant than yourself. Do you know how unbelievable that is for the world to do? Consider others more important than you. So when they inconvenience you, your response is, well, I'm sure they had something more important than me going on. When they ask for you to serve them or need you to serve them, your response is filled with delight because you have someone who you honor more than you, giving you an opportunity to honor them. And you do it because they're more important than you. That's how you view it. That only happens by the supernatural grace of God through his spirit. As you recognize that thought, Paul keeps pressing his point with his next thought. And I think they go together. So like this unified work of God's spirit that leads us to standing firm is so that we can strive together. The word for strive is like that for an athletic competition. It's literally soon, which has that idea of together, like something that's synchronized at the same prefix, S-Y-N or S-U-N, depending on how we spell it in English, which always changes everything. With the word athlete, athletos. 
strive, fight, labor together. In fact, you'll see this again in chapter 4, I think it's verse 3, where he says, I contended for the gospel with these laborers. It's that idea of striving and fighting together in one psyche with one soul. That is, there's this deep togetherness in what we're doing that we strive and we fight and we contend together, again, not because we like each other. We should. That's not the point, though. We do it because the mission. Look again in the text. We strive together for what? It says, we are doing this, we are striving together, side by side. That's that word, one soul. Side by side is metaphorically right. It's, it's as one soul. The church is one soul in its fight for what? The gospel. It actually says, this is the only time I could find this in the New Testament, for the faith of the gospel. Probably something is intended like this, for the faith, not our faith. Okay, so... Let me just kind of pull apart two ways the Bible uses the word faith. You are to have faith. That's how you, I'll use loosely the word feel. You feel like, like you internally express faith. Or there is the faith, the body of truth that we have faith in. Right? So you have faith in the faith. Like the faith is that body of truth. Sometimes we call it the gospel. And I think that's the point here. That is we are striving together for the faith, which is the gospel. So what are we fighting for? Like, what, what are we actually striving to do within our culture, within our church? It is to declare the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. That is, we stand in a culture that does not like or approve of the message of Jesus Christ and his call of lordship as he calls sinners to himself and from sin. Our world is not like that. Well, the Philippian world didn't either. Who was their Lord? Caesar. I mean, the phrase, Caesar is Lord, was the Roman mantra. In fact, any restaurant you would have gone into generally was, was also a temple where your server was a priest or a priestess, and when they came in and delivered your food, they would say a, a prayer to the, one of the gods of the pantheon that that restaurant represented. You could not go and have a dinner out on the town or celebrate a party in an in a, in a establishment for food without there being a prayer to a false god. They live in a culture that's immersed in paganism. And they were called to be apart from it. So you get invited to your boss's birthday party at the temple of Zeus, and what do you do? You cannot go and honor Christ, because for you to go is for you to go to a temple and be part of their system and to tacitly approve of their God. What do you think your boss does when you do that? What do you think that does for your employment strategies? When the whole culture declares Caesar is Lord, and you're like, Jesus is Lord. Suffering comes. They are striving for the gospel, not merely to stand in a dark world, but Paul says they are partners with him in the ministry of the gospel. They're not merely trying to stand, they're trying to advance. Well, what does this look like? Well, you can imagine what it's like talking to that boss that you didn't go to his birthday party and saying, the reason I didn't is because you need Jesus. He's Lord. No, there's no Lord but, but, but Caesar. And, and we're good Roman soldiers. We would never say something. No, no, Jesus is Lord. You can imagine how that conversation goes down. And the reason Paul was beaten was not because they were so excited that they were slapping him on the back. It's because they hated the message of Christ because it's ruining their economy. A holy city has no place for paganism. The temples will go bankrupt. The idol makers will go bankrupt. And those were commerce places in the city. So when they advance the gospel message, they do it in jeopardy of their families, their livelihood, their culture, their comfort, their money, their very life. All of it is risked. To speak to a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. 
about the great hope we have in the message of Jesus Christ, that we might be saved from our sins. Here he calls upon them to recognize that in the pressure, in the costliness of gospel work, the church can often internally hurt itself. Right? Doesn't he say something like, strive with one heart, with one soul, strive together for this gospel? You're not alone, but often as, as you work right next to someone, damage is done. Hurt is felt. And I think that's why when you come to chapter 2 and you read through the rest of the chapter, you go back to chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is calling for unity. Right? Like, I am pleading with you to help Yudia and Syntyche to, to agree, he says. You go back to chapter 1, and he says, Some preach the gospel with good motives, while some preach it for contention, hoping to add to my affliction. They say they're gospel partners. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the true gospel because Paul rejoices in it, but they're preaching it to hurt him. And the Apostle Paul is saying now that, that my obligation is to strive together with them, to call them to unity and repentance in that so that we can partner together that's incredibly hard. The same people that are adding to him hurt. He is trying to bring together for the sake of the gospel. Man, it is so easy to hurt others and to forget that I'm called to be united with them. I think you know, some of the tendencies we have probably the most simple and most common one that I see we struggle with in our culture is we just quit a church when it hurts. I mean, having, having played competitive sports, half of my injuries were caused by my own team members. And that whenever you're in a struggle in close quarters, you're going to get whacked. You're going to catch an elbow. You're going to get hurt. Do you quit? Is the gospel worth not quitting for? Is Jesus worth not quitting for? We say, yeah, absolutely. And so we live in a culture where we just bounce to more comfortable places. And we think we're not quitting. Rather than showing sweet unity by overcoming those things that cause us hurt because we care more about the advance of the truth of Jesus Christ and the good news of a Savior who died for sinners. We care less about that than we do our comfort. We care more about how we feel than the gospel going forth boldly. Can I, can I just testify to my shame here? One of my number one reasons for not talking to others about Christ is I'm afraid. To my shame. Probably what makes it a little easier for me to say is I think most of you with me feel that shame because it's hard for you too. I don't know that that should make us comfortable that we should all be ashamed together. But if for your comfort you keep your mouth quiet, this passage drills you because it's telling you that is not actually godly pursuit by faith of what it means to live like a citizen of heaven. That is actually living like a citizen of this earth. The final commitment. The final commitment. So we have stability by the power of the Spirit. We are united by striving for the truth. Mission keeps us together. I always picture like mission keeping us together like a little bit of a, a speedboat. You have two skiers on a ski, ski boat, and as you take off, they could be far apart, but as that boat picks up speed, what happens to the skiers? They get pulled together. If our mission is the advance of the gospel, and that's what unites us, then there, there at least for me, there's a pursuit of a couple things that help me be unified. What, what do I like about you? Jesus. <laughs> it's not actually, what do you like about me? Jesus, I'm really glad that that's what it is that brings you to church because otherwise, we got nothing. At some point, we'll offend you. We'll drive you away. If you like me for me, that's not going to be long before you don't like me for me. 
Right? Like, like, there's stuff to dislike about all of us. But you know what's always good and always sweet and always attractive and always glorious is Jesus. And so when my unity with you is not anchored to my behavior, my treatment of you, and vice versa, then our unity gets stabilized. When I care more about the advance of the mission than I do my own comfort, then all of a sudden how I feel and the, the, the elbows we might throw as we're trying to accomplish the work of Christ is so much less significant than the actual accomplishment of the mission. You can imagine that this is what resonates with the heart of any soldier who's putting his life on the line, that he cares more about the big picture than he does that moment of danger. You can imagine how this might give rest. I just want you to picture for a minute a dad in, in the World War II era in Germany who is Jewish and his whole family is Jewish, and he recognizes that uh, the lights and the noise coming down the road are these soldiers coming to get him and his family. And he looks at his precious wife and his little daughter. And he says, honey, run. And he goes out and he meets those soldiers and begins to talk to them. And only for the reason of stalling them so that his little daughter and his wife's arms can get away. You can imagine that that man, loving his daughter, loving his wife more than himself, finds peace. Because he loves them more than he loves himself. And on the mission, as he walks down that path to those soldiers who are coming, that will inevitably bring him to persecution and death just for his ethnicity. That he is laying his life for something he finds more precious than his own. And so he stands there boldly and talks to those soldiers and stalls them so that out the back his family can escape. You know, as Christians, sometimes I think we fail to see how precious the advance of the gospel is. And sometimes we love our comfort. Can we acknowledge that it is more wicked than that man were he to say, hey, honey, someone's out front to talk to you as he runs out the back? What a betrayal of our Lord that we would leave the assembly because we are uncomfortable or because someone didn't say hi to us or because someone sent us a text message and it was a little bit rude and we didn't like it and so we're gone. Man, the gospel of Christ is at stake. That's what we're doing here. That's what we should be all speaking to each other and encouraging one another with. And that's why this might I say challenging word that we be of one soul is because we share this commitment to the gospel of Christ and it's a supernatural unity God gives us through his spirit. Finally, we are fearless by faith in God's grace. We are fearless by faith in God's grace. Look again in this text. Verse 28, not frightened by anything, by your opponents. These opponents are not merely just the bully at school that makes fun of you for being a Christian who won't cuss. These are the type of people who have power in the civics. They can arrest you. They can confiscate your stuff. They can beat you, apparently, because they did it to Paul, publicly. They can, they can do so much damage. You can imagine the type of fear that would cause in the Christian community. You would tend to be an undercover Christian for the sake of your, your literal life as well as your family and finances and comfort. But, but Paul... And Scripture tells us here that, that the Philippians should not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And I think we can recognize why. If I'm a citizen of heaven, everything I hold dear is in heaven. Like everything I hold eternally dear, right? Christ is in heaven. Who is my life? And it's not that I don't love my unsaved relatives. It's that the thing that secures the compass of my soul is where Christ is, is where I am at. And my heart is his, my destiny is with him, I am hid with Christ. That means, although physically I might appear like I'm in Bakersfield, I'm in heaven. And if I die and go to heaven, my destiny is no more securely put in heaven than when I am alive on this earth right now. My destiny is heaven. Because my life is hidden 
in Christ so that where he is is where God sees me to be. And where God sees me to be, that's where I am. If that's the case, then, we can understand why the apostle says, not frightened in anything. Not anything. One of the great sources of unity, then, is not being motivated by fear. When we are afraid, we do things bad. Right? When I'm defending my reputation, my person, when I'm defending others, that's where I actually excuse doing bad things. Right? So if I'm afraid I will look bad, I might say bad stuff about you first. I'm pretty proactive. That's a good thing, right? I'm just saying, like, we have all sorts of mechanisms to cause us to respond poorly when we are afraid, when we are hurting. When things we love are, are jeopardized, when we don't feel safe, when our finances are threatened, when our reputation is damaged, when our comfort is at risk, these are the things that cause us then in a, in a, in a defensive desire to secure those things we care about, we can often respond with sin and disunity. If being part of this church costs me something, I might be afraid to stay we might say. So, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Think about that for the Philippians. If I gather with you on Sunday, my coworker might see it, turn me into my boss, and I'll lose my job. Maybe I shouldn't go. Maybe I'll drive in a really dark limo. Like, we're going to find ways to let fear move us when we see the threat. Notice he says, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. That is that fearlessness is the birthmark of those who hope in heaven. Because I don't need this life because I have a life with Christ. And the worst you can do to me is take away temporary stuff. You can take away my physical body. That's temporary. It's already getting old. You can take away my stuff. That's temporary. My treasure should be laid up in heaven. The things that last are eternal and are not at risk ever by the opposition against the gospel. The only thing that gospel ministry, um, gospel ministry gives me eternal things, the only thing at risk in gospel ministry are temporary things. And yet, that fear of loss can very much control us. So, fearlessness is a sign that you are getting the heart of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Now, I would suggest to you, although our time is quickly running out, that the power of this passage, a little bit like a scorpion, is in the tail. The text crashes hard at the very end into this incredible thought that you cannot miss or you miss so much goodness. Okay, so look again at verse 29. Okay, so, so this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation in verse 28. And that from where? Where's your salvation from? God. He continues on. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe. Let's, let's stop there and take a second. He has walked us through these three commitments we should have in the middle of life so that we are faithful as citizens of heaven. We need to stand firm. We need to strive together, and we need to be fearless. Right? We have all of those commitments that we would have our loyalties to heaven, our values in heaven, our desires heavenward, so that we stand firm, we strive together, and we are not afraid. Right? Like, like we're seeing that, and so that leads us. Those three attributes are on display and the world can see we're citizens of heaven. I think more likely the whole point is the Philippians are confirmed in their citizenship. They know where they're going. They know where their hope is. They love the thought of heaven. And the risk of this earth is not actually risk. Like, did Jesus Christ risk anything by dying? The answer is no. He gained. And because he knew the plan of God and the purpose of God, the only, if you want to give risk, was that he paid a high, steep price. But he gained so much more. There was no risk ever of loss to Christ, ever. And likewise, for the believer, there's no risk 
Like there is, there is no, I just kind of off, off the sermon manuscript a little bit. If you are doing something for the sake of Christ, I don't think scripture gives you any freedom to use the word risk. Is God in control? If you're serving Christ, you're investing in eternity, what could you possibly lose that it's eternal? Nothing. And it's not as though God's going to accidentally let something happen like, ooh, shouldn't let that through the cracks. Like, that never happens. There are no risks with the sovereign Lord who's all-knowing. Therefore, the Christian ought to dive headfirst into advancing the gospel, into expensive, costly sacrifices for Christ, because there are zero risks. You never lose anything when you pursue Christ, ever. The only risk that Christian faces is when they're dumb enough to live for this earth and not wise enough to live for heaven. And so we've constantly got to preach to ourselves that this life, the stuff in it, the values of this earth are not to grab our attention. They're not to grab our hearts, and we cannot live for them. We have to live for the pleasure of God, for the approval of God, for the glory of his Son. And we have got to serve these things because those things secure our steadiness when life hurts. Okay, back on track. At the end here, he's hitting a really strong point about how God gives us salvation. Look again. It is, it is this from God, salvation. Now, now, theologically, we would get that. Who sent his son to die? God did. Salvation is from God. God is the rescuer. God is the redeemer. God is the savior. But then he adds this thought. It has been granted. Well, granted is actually the word charis. It's the word grace. So let me read it that way. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. So let's just full stop. Don't miss this. Why are you a saved person? For whose sake? For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. He's going to say he's going to add something else. That's why they have that not only. So let me take that out of there. For the sake of Christ, you should believe. God did not save you merely for your sake. He saved you to give you as a treasure to Christ. That is one of the most confounding, amazing thoughts ever. I, mean, I always like picture things, and I know I'm weird, so just walk with me for a second. The father's like, son, I love you so much, I'm giving you Mark. I just look at it, like picture Jesus being like, really? Like, how much does God treasure his sweet people? He is redeemed by the blood of his son. And then gives as a treasure, an inheritance, Scripture tells us, to Christ. God graced us belief. Your belief is given to you as a grace. It doesn't mean that you don't believe and that God just like slaps it on you like a wart. It sits on the outside of your skin. It's not actually part of you. No, faith is, faith is something God grants you, but it's expressed by you in the gospel. And it, it's one of those mysteries that we understand that faith is a gift, but it's expressed personally. Just stop for a moment. You believe because God graced you with belief. You are saved because God graced you with belief in the gospel. You are saved because the God of eternity architected all of human history to have a moment in time in which through the grace of the Spirit and the message of the gospel, you trusted and repented. God of grace did that for you. And now he calls you to suffer. Because look at the next one. You have been graced not only to believe, but also to suffer. It's like we want to stop, full stop after belief, right? Like, God graced me with salvation and faith. Let's just have a worship service. The rest of the sentence we should erase. Suffering is a grace. We suffer because God graces us with it. 
Any of you hurting? Is that a grace? Any of you suffering? It's grace. I am talking to a church that lives in a sin-cursed world where sin does damage and causes injury. And we look at the pain like it's evil instead of looking at the evil as evil. This earth hurts us. The life on it, the culture of it, it's opposed to Christ, it's opposed to what is good, and it causes injury. Our own souls rebel against our Savior and cause injury to others as well as ourselves. This world is suffering. And we look at that and say, suffering is evil. That is not what the text tells us. The text tells us that our salvation is by grace, we believe by grace, and we suffer by grace. Say it again. If you're suffering, God is doing it by grace. I know we don't like suffering. When I'm in it, I want to find a way out of it. I can't wait till the suffering stops. I don't want to hurt. You probably are like me. That seems very rational. I've heard people say things like, don't waste your suffering. I think we ought to say something even better. I don't have good words for it, but if suffering is grace, then I need to thank God for it. I need to pursue Christ through it, and I should not call it evil. Suffering is what Christ has done for you. It was the necessary doorway for his glory and magnification. And if Christ calls you to suffer, just to be clear, suffer for his sake, he says it again. If you suffer because you're a moron, that is not what we're talking about. Suffering for Christ. So as a parent, when you stand for Christ in your home and your teenager says, I hate you, within the church, when you're speaking to someone graciously and calling them to Christ and it makes them look bad and so they hurt you, when you talk to your neighbor or your coworker and they respond by shaming you, when you, when you perhaps lose associations or friendships or have to just bear the injury of others and you do so because you love Jesus, it's grace. It's grace to suffer injury when your spouse is hurting and she says something that hurts you and you say, I will not respond in sin because I love Jesus. That's grace. We look at suffering and we attack those who hurt us. We don't like them. We run away from it. We pray for rescue from it. And God is saying, I graced you with it. This is good. Proverbs says that the crucible is for silver. The refining pot is for gold. And God tries the hearts. And we want to run as far as we can from the purification work of Christ because it hurts. It's a grace. It's a grace. You know what stabilizes you when you suffer? Saying this is grace. The same God who is so incredibly unimaginably thoughtful that from all of eternity past, he considered and loved your wicked carcass, redeemed it by the blood of Jesus Christ, and sets his precious love on you forever in the past and forever in the future. He loves your soul. That same affection says, here's some suffering for your sake. And we sin to get away. We hurt others to escape. We lash back at our spouses and our children because we're hurting. We don't tell our neighbors about Jesus because we're afraid. We get rocked when we are hurt. And we fall off faithfulness. And like, apparently, your unathletic pastor, 
in a very still calm bay in Florida. I couldn't even stay on a stupid board. Someone just pokes us. Or just crashing the sin. What a sweet reminder to the Philippian church. You know what Paul doesn't say here? I'm so sorry you're suffering. I wish I could do anything to get you away from it. He says, stand firm. Strive together for something greater than yourself, the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ and the glory of the eternal Son. Don't be afraid. We are citizens of heaven. Don't be afraid. They cannot threaten. They cannot take it away. You are God's precious, redeemed child. Forever you have heaven. Do not wax, excuse me, do not wane in your faith. Do not give it up. Do not be shaken. Stay strong. And by the way, suffering is a grace. That's from the same hand of God that gave you faith. You can trust him. Have God so loved you from eternity past? That suffering was not an afterthought. It was not a moment of forgetfulness. It was not a moment of unkindness. It was the God of grace who gave it to you. Trust it. Let it do its work. Be made holy by it. Pursue Christ through it. But do not quit. Do not give up. Do not sin. Do not hesitate to follow Christ. Get in the word. Pray and plead for strength. Stand strong by the strength of the Spirit. Strive together for the gospel. Do not be afraid. So lives the citizen of heaven. Those commitments are firm resolves. We preach them to ourselves in the quiet moments of forgetfulness. We preach them to ourselves when life hurts us. We preach them to others when we see them struggling. But we, as citizens of heaven, commit. We will stand firm. We will strive together. And we will not be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your eternal grace. Thank you for Jesus. Secure and keep us safe by the strength that only you can give. Lord, help us to love Christ more than we love ourselves. Help us to treasure heaven more than the treasures of this earth. Lord, help us to love you, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.